In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day and ask you to bless us and grant us your peace in all things. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. <clears throat> uh, good evening, everybody. God willing, today we're going to continue studying in the book of Genesis, uh, chapters 4 and 5. Uh, last week, we uh, finished speaking about the fall of man. And we see that Adam and Eve are ejected from the Garden of Eden and uh, the curse that was proclaimed on uh, the man and the woman as they would now have to go out of the garden and to live life, uh, a much more difficult life than the God had intended for them to live in the garden. Um, and really this is now the beginning of, we see a kind of uh, what we could call normal life in the sense of this is uh, them living outside of uh, the garden that God had created them in and experiencing all of the different uh, corruption that had entered into the world as a result of the sin that they had committed. Um, so we'll start at the beginning of Genesis chapter 4. It says, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. Um, some say that it's possible that uh, Eve believed that this man who was born of her who was Cain, uh, was the promised one uh, that, that God had, uh, uh, sorry, uh, that, that God had uh, already spoken to, uh, to Eve from before. So if you remember, uh, after the curse, uh, God said that there would be a, a man who uh, is going to bruise the head of the serpent, who would be a descendant or a seed coming from Eve, um, and that she was now expecting this person to be born. So uh, it's possible that Eve believed that this one who was to be born of her, who was born of her Cain, was actually the one who God intended. Um, but of course, we know that, that it wasn't him. Um, sometimes we believe that the promise of God that God makes to us is uh, happening very quickly, uh, that uh, whenever God promises something, we look for it to happen in the very near, near future. And, but it doesn't mean that it will necessarily happen soon. And sometimes we are disappointed when it doesn't happen. Uh, an example of this is with the Thessalonians. Um, the Thessalonians in the New Testament, there was a time where they believed that the end, the second coming was imminent. Like it was going to happen in their lifetime and some stopped working um, and quit their jobs believing that this was going to happen. Um, but again, we know that it wasn't happening at that time. And so when, when we hear a promise from God, we, we live um, as though the promise is happening right then and can happen at any time. But at the same time, we should understand that things might not happen as quickly as we think because God's timetable is different um, from our own. St. Ambrose, he believes that Cain symbolizes the Jews um, because he was the one who was born first from Eve. Uh, and then uh, uh, Abel represents the church or represents the Christians because he was born second. Um, Cain was, was born um, having denied faith because he, he, he committed sin and killed his brother. Um, and Abel was like representing of the faithful uh, to be counted as the church of the firstborn as it's mentioned in Hebrew 12, 23. Uh, St. Ambrose says, in Cain, we see the Jewish people spoiled by the blood of their Lord and their creator and also their friend, and in Abel, we apprehend the Christian man. So it's kind of like as a symbolism between Cain and Abel, that Cain was the firstborn, just as the Jews came before the Christians, and yet the Christians are the ones who held to the true faith. Uh, and then, So we also read that Abel here is a shepherd, and, he, and Cain was a tiller of the ground, meaning that he worked the land. Um, and in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat, and the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering, and Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. Okay, so um, 
we see here now like uh, the beginning of a conflict that is going to happen between Cain and Abel, right? Uh, Cain brought this offering. So remember, he was a tiller of the ground. So um, his work had to do with uh, farming and agriculture. And so uh, he brought to God this offering of fruit, okay? Um, whereas Abel, who was a shepherd, he brought to God the firstborn uh, of his flock, okay, as a sacrifice. And we see that God respected Abel's offering, but didn't respect Cain's offering. So a lot of times people will ask this question is, why is it that just based on what we're reading here, why is it that God did not accept the offering of Cain and he instead accepted the offering of Abel? Okay, somebody wants to, to type in any ideas and thoughts that you have in the chat window um, of why you think that is. Why did God not respect Cain's offering? So somebody said it wasn't an offering of blood, okay? So good, that's one reason, right? Um, we know that God has revealed, of course, written in the scripture, it hadn't been revealed yet, but, but we know that God reveals later on that the type of offering that is acceptable to him for the remission of sins or for it's like an offering to God is one, uh, is one that is of blood. Because in Hebrews 9.22, it says, and according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood and without shedding of blood, there is no remission. Okay, it, there, it, there, there is no remission. Somebody said it wasn't what he asked for. Okay, so what is it that he asked for? Okay, so... Um, so that's one reason, right? Is the sacrifice of blood. This is the type. Now, now people will say, well, it, ne it was never, it was never written anywhere here in the early scripture in the, in this time it was never written anywhere that God was expecting this as an offering, right? There was no commandment given at this time that we can read in the Bible that says this is an offering that was given. But as with tradition, you know, which is something that is uh, teachings that we have received from God that wasn't explicitly written down uh, in the Bible, we can say, well, somehow Abel knew that this was the kind of offering that God wanted. And so perhaps God had communicated this to them um, from the very beginning and, and Abel followed this teaching, whereas Cain did not. Okay. Um, and clearly we see throughout the rest of the Bible that the types of offering that God wanted was the, uh, the, 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 the sacrifice, the animal sacrifice offering. Okay. Also, another thing to point out um, is it doesn't say that Cain offered the first fruit, right? It just says Cain offered, brought an offering of the fruit, okay? Um, and this also is indicated by the, the phrase when it says, and in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering. So it's like maybe uh, Cain uh, had now his crop and his fruit, and he decided at some point that he was going to make an offering of this fruit to God instead of giving him the first fruit, which is the first of the, of the harvest that he would bring, um, potentially. Um, St. Jerome, actually, he believes that Cain um, offered the fruit of the ground, but he did not offer it with like a good intention, or he did not offer it with his heart. He presented like the outer offering of fruit, but he didn't like offer himself, or like he wasn't, he wasn't um, offering himself to God. It was just like an external offering, okay? So there are several reasons why we can say that God did not accept the fruit of uh, the, the, the sacrifice of Cain and he accepts, but he accepted the sacrifice of Abel. Um, St. Didymus the blind, um, he says that because of fire probably came down and consumed the offering. That's how we would know that his offering was rejected. Um, why, how did Cain know that, that God accepted Abel's offering? In which case that Cain became upset. You know, St. Didymus says it's very likely that there would be like some kind of indication like fire that would come down from heaven, um, kind of like what happened in Leviticus chapter nine, uh, where pe the people would see that God consumed the sacrifice. Fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the altar. When all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. This is from Leviticus 9.24. So, so it, it's possible that that's how uh, it was known by them that God accepted the offering of Abel and didn't accept the offering of Cain. So what was then 
um, the response of Cain when his offering was rejected, okay? It says, Cain was very angry and his countenance fell, okay? He was, he was, he was angry, he was sad, he felt, he felt rejected um, and he felt jealous of his brother and his countenance fell, it was clear in his, in his emotional state, he was, he was very sad. Um, so the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Okay. So now here we see what is it that God is doing? He is um, trying actually to bring Cain to a right understanding of himself. What is it that has actually just happened? We see first that God asks him a question, just like before when he asked Adam the question and he said, where are you? And we said the reason that God asked these questions is for us to understand ourselves because the answer is really an answer we need to give to ourselves, not to God. God already knows the answer. He already knows what we're doing. But maybe we don't understand. So when God asks Cain, why are you angry? It's because he wants Cain to think about that question. Why am I angry? What is it that has happened for me to be angry? Why has your countenance fallen? And then he goes on and he says what? If you do well, will you not be accepted? Meaning, meaning there, I have nothing against you. Right. God is saying, I have nothing against you. I am. I, I'm, 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 but, but what you have offered, right. Is not right. Right. That's, that's because that's why he says, if you do not do, if you do, if you do well, will you not be accepted? Meaning it is clear at this point that God had communicated to them what was considered an acceptable sacrifice. And it should have been clear to Cain that what he was offering was not acceptable. Um, we spoke about um, in the Q&A this past week, uh, we spoke about the, uh, uh, the, the, the story of King Saul, okay? And King Saul, who was offering things to God that God had not desired, and that were actually against God's commandment. So you can't make an offering to God uh, with something that is, uh, is against God's will. So, um, so here maybe Cain had some wrong motives in, in what he was offering, and he didn't offer it completely with his heart, like we said, or he was offering something against what God had, um, had, had told him that he wanted. So then he goes on and says, if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. He's describing now this process of temptation and, and sinful desire. He says, sin is like, is, 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 um, is like trying to lure us right, to tempt us. Its desire is for you, but you should rule over it, right? This, he's describing this process of spiritual warfare, okay? Sin lies at the door means that the sin is very accessible. It's very uh, delightful. It's something that we want to do. It's something that's very easy for us to, to do, and yet we are the ones that are, should rule over it. We should be strong in order to have self-control to prevent ourselves from falling into sin. Um, in 1 Peter 5, verse 8, uh, when St. Peter is describing the enemy and he says, be sober, be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, right? So he's, he, this is the, the same idea that sin lies at the door. Its desire is for you. Like it seeks to destroy you. It is like, uh, it, it, it is your adversary and it is like roaming around waiting to devour you. But the only way you can keep yourself from it is to rule over yourself, Right. Is to, is to have control, self-control over yourself so you do not give in to it, okay? Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him, okay? So even after God had spoken to Cain and told him, first of all, making it clear to him that God has nothing against him, that he's disobeying God's command and falling into sin. And he is warning him about that, that if this continues on forward, if, if, if this continues this way without him repenting, then it might lead to something worse. This is why he's saying sin lies at the door, right? Because what is the sin that is lying at the door? Now this hatred and envy that is building up inside of Cain against his brother Abel, who now he wants to kill, right? And so he's, he's telling him, don't allow this sin to be entrenched and to take root in you, okay? When this internal sin and hatred and jealousy is not dealt with, 
right? It, it rose up and overcame Cain and he could not control it anymore, okay? And, and so what began as maybe uh, thoughts and, and inside of his mind and feelings now is being converted into action because while it was still at the level of thought, Cain did not deal with it. He did not repent. He did not uh, try to answer this question. Why am I angry? Do I have a right to be angry or not? You know, sometimes we, we, we don't sit and we, we're like taken by the emotions that we feel. We are, we are like, like, in, like a river that's taking us somewhere without us even controlling where it is that we're going. We, we need to be able to step back and say, why do I feel the way that I feel? Is this legitimate, the way that I feel? And if I see that it is not legitimate feeling, then I need to fight it. I can't just allow it to consume me and to take me where I do not want to go. Here, Cain assumed that by killing his brother, his problem would be solved. Like, you know, I'm upset at my brother because he has won the uh, he's won the favor of God and that God has accepted his offering and he has not accepted my offering. So I'm just going to eliminate him. And that somehow by eliminating him, that somehow this was going to make his situation better and that he wasn't going to be any more, uh, you know, having this feeling of envy and that, and that somehow maybe that would bring him, uh, you know, favor in the eyes of God because there's nobody else. Uh, but clearly it was, he was misguided, right? Um, he thought that this was going to solve his problem, but it actually made things even worse for him. Um, as we will see. So a lot of times when we give in to temptation, we feel like it is something good and right, something that is going to make our lives better, when oftentimes or every time it actually makes our life worse. Then the Lord said to Cain, okay, somebody asked, when we are tempted with thoughts of jealousy like Cain, is it enough to just not act upon it and pray about it? Or does doing good toward the person that we feel jealousy towards help? Definitely when we do good to someone who we are jealous of, it helps to uh, eliminate those feelings of jealousy. When we build good relationship with someone, it's harder for us to work against them. Like it's harder for us to, to mistreat them. It's harder for us to think badly toward them the more we try to deal with them in a positive way. So definitely when we have feelings of jealousy or envy towards someone, we should do our very best to serve that person as much as we can. And this will help us overcome those feelings. Okay. Uh, in verse 9, it says, Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, Why? What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So again, we see that God is asking another question. Where is Abel your brother? Just like he said, Do you have the right to be angry or why are you angry? Just as before with Adam, he says, Where are you? All these questions that God is asking, intending for us to reflect. Where is Abel, your brother? And so again, uh, Cain would have had the opportunity here to confess. And he could have said, I killed him because I was angry with him. I'm sorrowful for what I did. I have regret. We don't see any evidence at all of, of Cain having any kind of regret or remorse for what is it that he has done. Okay. And God here is showing Cain that nothing can be hidden from him that Cain can lie all he wants, but God knows and sees the truth from the beginning. Um, and Cain didn't realize uh, that he had the opportunity to be accepted, just like Abel, right? Just Abel was accepted because he offered the sacrifice that was pleasing to God. Cain also had a chance to be uh, accepted by God by repentance, that he could have changed. And he could have said, I am sorry for what it is that I have done, right? But he instead chose to alienate himself further from God. And we see examples of this in, in you know, in, in, in people in the scripture, like a perfect example is Judas. Like Judas, after he uh, betrayed God, he still had the opportunity for repentance, but he instead chose to alienate himself further and to further isolate himself and to wallow in despair for what he had done. Here, maybe Cain was not wallowing in despair, but he had apathy. You know, he, he was very apathetic to what, what he did to his brother. He didn't feel any kind of remorse for what is it that he did. So now uh, God is going to declare uh, the punishment on Cain. He said, so now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on the earth. Right. So um, this is the consequence, right, that. That because Cain specifically, that was his vocation, is he was a tiller of the ground. 
And now God is saying, it is no longer going to yield its strength to you. Like you are not going to be successful in your work, right? A fugitive and a vagabond you shall be. You shall be like, you're not going to be able to work. You will run around and, 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 and you will be hated and you will be a fugitive running away. You will not have like a, a permanent place for you to live. You will not have like the, the ground. You will not be able to work and to provide for yourself and so on. Okay, so this is the, the punishment, right, that Cain received. And then it says, Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth. And it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. Right? And the Lord said to him, therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord uh, and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. Okay, So even at this point, right, we don't still see that uh, Cain is repenting of anything. You know, his, his greatest concern is that the punishment on him was a difficult punishment and that he was suffering because of this punishment. But he didn't express remorse, right, at all. In fact, he's now just worried about himself. He's saying um, because he is now a fugitive and because it is known what is it that he has done, then people are going to kill me and they're going to find me and, and destroy me, right? And so God, again, like in his, um, you know, in his kindness to Cain, right, and in giving Cain hope for the future and giving him opportunity to still repent, he says, what, I will protect you so that nobody will kill you. I will put a mark on you so that anyone who sees you will know that you are protected by God and that, um, and, and that no one should kill you, okay? Um, so even though God is, is showing dissatisfaction with everything that Cain has done, Cain offered the wrong kind of offering. Cain was jealous and envious of his brother. Cain killed his brother. Cain didn't offer any remorse or repentance. And yet even with this, God was still... Uh, trying to preserve Cain's life to give him an opportunity to repent. Okay. And, and when it says here, therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. As we said before, the number seven is a perfect number. So it means like there will be complete vengeance against him. There will be like, 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 like overwhelming vengeance against the person who tries to kill Cain, whoever kills Cain. So God is demonstrating to him and to us again, that we might live a life of sin and we might make many, many wrong choices and decisions. And yet in the end, he, he, he's not quick to condemn us. He wants to keep giving us opportunity after opportunity, opportunity to change, to, to, to listen to his voice and to our heart to be changed. And we see this even in the life of Cain. Um, somebody says, uh, does revealing the details of our jealousy, thoughts and confession matter? Or is it enough just to confess the sin and God would, would just work on it in our heart? Uh, the more that we express in confession, the more that we reveal in confession, the easier it is for us to overcome those things. So, for instance, if I commit a sin like of jealousy and I say I was jealous, this is a confession. And, you know, if I, if I offer it, you know, sincerely, I am forgiven. But if I go into more detail about what it is that I'm uh, jealous of and, 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 and not hiding kind of not being like not hiding and making myself to be like, like, uh, like, like not, not being afraid of being like ashamed or, 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 or to revealing myself being vulnerable is what I mean to say uh, and, and exposing myself, right? The more we expose ourselves in confession, the more powerful the experience will be and the, and the, and the more likely that we'll be able to overcome because we are not hiding. Like, like the devil, he wins when, when he, he pushes us into hiding, when he makes us not want to reveal the truth because we find that the truth is shameful. And so we don't want to admit it. We don't want to admit to ourselves uh, or to our father of confession. But when we feel like I am pushing myself to admit even the most embarrassing details about something, it is not that I must speak about all the details for my confession to be a confession. But there's something about revealing ourselves completely and openly and like laying it all out before God so that it will help us to not fall into the sin again. It's, uh, it's, it makes it easier for us not to fall into the sin again. 
So Cain is now, you know, he's still alive. And it says, and Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch and he built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. So we know Enoch is a famous name uh, from the Old Testament, but this is not that Enoch. So there is an Enoch we're going to read about later in the next chapter uh, in the genealogy of Seth, which is going to be another son of Adam and Eve, which who has an interesting story. Um, but this Enoch here is not that Enoch. So we've got more than one Enoch. Uh, and this is, he's, this is Enoch who was the son of Cain. And uh, he built a city and named it after, and Cain built a city named it after his son Enoch. Okay. To Enoch was born, born Irad, and Irad begot Mahuajel, and Mahuajel begot Methuhashel, and Methuhashel begot Lamech. Then Lamech took for himself two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the second was Zila. Okay. Um, some people see uh, like Lamech's life with these two women as representing uh, like an atheist who was forsaking God. The line of Cain that came from Cain was seen as a line of those who were rejecting of God, right? Whereas the line of Seth, who was the son that will be born after this, is seen as the line of those who are faithful to God, okay? So here, Lamech, um, uh, in the Assyrian language, his wives, the, the name Ada uh, means darkness, while Zila uh, means shadows of the night. So, so it's like even the names here are like representative of those who are living in darkness and away from God. So it's as though as Lamech and his wickedness chose to be united with darkness and shadows um, because of his evil. One important principle or that we find in the Old Testament is that very often the names of people are very significant in kind of what, what's happening with them, their character and their life. And so the names here are kind of indicating that Lamech and, and really the line of Cain, um, they, are, they are living in sin. And Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jabal, uh, uh, Jubal, sorry. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the harp and flute. And as for Zila, she also bore Tubal Cain, an instructor of every craftsman in bronze and iron. And, and the sister of Tubal Cain was Nama. Uh, then Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zila, hear my voice. Wives of Lamech, listen to my speech. For I uh, have killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. If Cain should be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Okay, so Lamech here is speaking to his wives, and, and this kind of short little phrase is considered like a type of a poem. And there are many times in the Old Testament where people speak in like a short poetic phrase, and this is the first of these that we find in the Old Testament. It's like a short, like, uh, you know, poem uh, in, in Hebrew literature. And it's actually called The Song of the Sword by Lamech. Uh, it is known in, in the Hebrew literature by that name, The Song of the Sword by Lamech. Um, and so here, what is he saying? Lamech is expressing uh, that he has killed a man um, for wounding him. So he's, somebody hurt him. And so he went and retaliated against him and killed him, Okay. Um, and so he's like proclaiming, he's like remembering that, that God had given to Cain this promise that said what? That if anyone kills Cain, it shall be avenged <coughs> sevenfold, okay? So here Lamech is speaking about himself, and he's like kind of like trying to make it the, the same kind of vow. And he's saying, if anybody uh, were to kill me, then, uh, then, then, then they will be recompensed 77-fold, which is like to say that like even more then Cain would be avenged. So, of course, this was like a very prideful statement for him to, one, he's saying it about himself, and two, to say that, you know, the amount of avenging that will happen because of his own death if someone were to kill him is actually greater than what is it that God would have done with Cain, okay? So he's expressing pride. He's, he has the spirit of revenge, who is like trying to kill someone uh, that hurt him, and he's very much trusting in his own strength because who is it that's going to fulfill this promise, right? It is no one who will fulfill it. 
God is the one who said he would fulfill it in the sake of Cain. And here he's like almost making himself out to be God by making such a statement. Okay. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth. For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. And as for Seth, to him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. Okay, so Eve, when she gave birth to Cain, she thought that he was like a blessing to all the generations, and she was happy. She said, I've received the man from the Lord, but he turned out not to be. Um, and so God compensated her with the birth of another son whose name is Seth, is Seth and the name Seth means substitute right, or helper, as though God is like giving him as a substitute for, uh, for Abel who was killed, right? She had received Abel who was killed, and so it's like Seth is like a replacement for him, okay? Um, and his son, whose name is Enosh, right? Enosh means human, okay? So Seth and his descendants were all considered like spiritual people that were faithful to God, uh, contrary to the line of Cain. This is why when it says at the end here, then men began to call on the name of the Lord, right? Men began to call on the name of the Lord, meaning that, 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 that faith like like started to become a part of the lives of these people of this uh, branch of humanity which were uh those of the line of seth they were believers in god they believed in him they worshiped him they called on his name they prayed to him and so again seth is seen as like this this family this branch is considered from those that are faithful uh to god okay that's the end of chapter four okay um, we're going to now go through chapter five. Chapter five is mostly uh, names and genealogy. So we'll try to go through it kind of quickly. Um, <clears throat> so uh, note that a few things before we get into this genealogy. Note that number one, Abel is not included in the genealogy. The only son of Adam included in this genealogy is that of Seth because Seth was seen as the one who was carrying the faith forward, right? It was through him and his line that the Messiah would come, okay? Also, Cain was omitted, okay? Uh, Abel is omitted because he, he had died. He didn't have any children. And Cain was omitted because he was evil, right? And he didn't uh, obey God. But it says, this is the book of the gene genealogy of Adam. In the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God, okay? So God created man in his likeness, but that was lost whenever he fell into sin, right? That he no longer was like, like he, he, no, he, he no longer had the, 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 like the, the, the likeness of the Lord. Like he wasn't like the Lord in the sense of his behavior, of his, his innocence, right? And instead he, he lost it when he fell into sin. But he was made in the likeness of God. Uh, he made, he created them male and, oh, sorry. Uh, he created them male and female, and blessed them and called them mankind in the day they were created, okay? So here there is a little table, which essentially is going to summarize everything that is going to be written in this chapter, okay? These are the names of the people, the genealogy from Adam all the way to Noah through the line of Seth, okay? And here you can see uh, how old they were when their son was born, how old they were when they died, um, what year they were born and what year they died, uh, okay? So you can see that it starts from year one, essentially, that Adam being born, um, all the way to the year of the birth of Noah was 1056, okay? So about a 1,000 years after the creation is when Noah was born. But concerning these ages, um, different people have various interpretations of what these numbers mean, okay? Some people said that these numbers um, in the Hebrew language were obscure and difficult to translate. So we can't necessarily take them literally as they are. Other people say that the ages here are not of the people themselves, but of their like tribes, their like families, right? So, so in, 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 that, in that case, it wouldn't necessarily be that this one person lived this long, but this tribe was living this long, okay? Some people also say about genealogies that they are not necessarily including all the generations in between, but they might be including uh, like other 
There might be other generations in between that are not mentioned. So in the end, like we said earlier, um, the book of Genesis is not meant to be a historical and accurate account in that sense that will answer every question. You know, some people, they look at lists of genealogies and they, based on this, they like can, you know, try to calculate years and times and how old the world is and things like that. Well, there's no guarantee here that these numbers are representing the literal number of years that each of these people lived. Okay. Different people have different opinions about this. Um, some people do believe that this is the number of years, but um, there's different there's different ideas. Okay, um, the idea of this genealogy and why you know some people ask why are there genealogies at all in the Bible? It's just kind of like a, a lot of names and it's difficult to read. One of the main reasons that a genealogy like this at this point in time is here um, is to make it clear that 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 these people are dying that people are dying, that everyone who lives dies. Because remember, this wasn't the original plan. The original plan is that the people that would be born, they would be eating of the tree of life and they would live forever, right? This is what God wanted from Adam and Eve, right? But it was because of sin that entered into the world that now man is dying, right? And so this is making it clear that each person has a fixed amount of time on the earth. We read about them being born and we read about them dying. Right there is a, there is a fixed period of time. Okay, so um, we'll start and just reading through these names. It says, "And Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth." Okay. The idea that here it's speaking about Seth as being in the likeness of Adam it means that he was a human like him, right? He because Adam was created by God. But what about those who are born of Adam? Right, they are of the same nature as Adam. Right, you can say that Adam and Eve were very unique in the way that they, in the way that they were created. And the question would be, well, when they procreate, what is gonna, what is gonna, what is gonna be the next generation? What are they gonna look like? Are they gonna be like Adam? Are they gonna be different from Adam, uh, or not? And so here's making it clear that um, Adam is the same as his offspring. He is a human being, and Seth is also of his own likeness and image. He is also a human being. Um, after he begot Seth, the days of Adam were 800 years, and he had sons and daughters. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. So this is kind of like a template that we're going to use and see over and over again for the other names that are going to be mentioned, right? It's going to say somebody lived for a certain amount of time, and he begot someone, and that person who was begotten lived a certain time, and he had sons and daughters, and then in the end, that person died, Okay. Seth lived 105 years and begot Enosh. After he begot Enosh, Seth lived 807 years and he had sons and daughters. So all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. So also important to understand that the, Seth, for instance, he had many sons and daughters, but Enosh is the one that we are focusing on, right? He's the one who is being mentioned specifically. Enosh lived 90 years and begot Canaan. After he begot Canaan, Enosh lived 815 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enosh were 905 years and he died. Canaan lived 70 years and begot Mahalel. And after he begot Mahalel, Canaan lived 840 years and he had sons and daughters. So all the days of Canaan were 910 years and he died. Mahalel lived 65 years and begot Jared. After we got Jared, Mahalel lived 830 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Mahalel were 895 years and he died. Jared lived 162 years and begot Enoch. After he got Enoch, Jared lived 800 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. Okay, now this, remember, this is the second Enoch. Enoch, the first one was from the line of Cain. This is now from the line of Seth. Enoch lived 65 years and begot Methuselah. After he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years and Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. So you see, there's something different here about Enoch. All these other uh, names um, in this lineage of Seth 
we, they all follow the same structure. You know, this person lived a certain number of years. He had sons of daughters and he died, you know, and then he, and then we focus on a person of his offspring. And this is this person lived a certain number of years. He had sons and daughters and he died. Okay. Whereas here with Enoch, okay. It's a little different. Instead of just saying he lived a certain number of years, it says Enoch walked with God 300 years. It's saying that there's something about him different. There's something unique about him. The, the, the life of this person was different than the others, okay? He, Enoch, is actually mentioned in two other places in the scripture. He's mentioned in the book of Hebrews, and he's mentioned in the book of Jude, okay? So we'll read what is said about him here. In Hebrews, Hebrews 11.5, it says, By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For, for before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Okay, so if all these different people represent believers, right, who died, they were transferred from death to life, right? So if we look at this in a symbolic way, all of these people who died, okay, they died, and then at the resurrection, they would be resurrected from the death, right? They were transferred from death to life. If we look at it symbolically like that, then what does Enoch represent? Enoch represents those who will not experience death by the coming of the Lord, right? Because they shall be caught out in the clouds. So kind of like looking at the second coming, those who are alive at the second coming will not die, but they will be, uh, you know, they, they, they will, they will, they will uh, be caught up in the clouds with the Lord. So Enoch kind of represents this, the one who does not die, but is, 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 is resurrected directly, right? Um, whereas the others are those who die and are resurrected. And we see that the one who is given the most attention is the one who was really living with God, okay? Enoch represents like a person who was restored to the first state in paradise. And this is what we are doing in our spiritual struggle as we are trying to be restored again to our first state in paradise. In Jude, it says about him, now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also saying, behold, the Lord comes with 10,000s of his saints to execute on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Okay, so this is this quote that I just read is attributed to the man Enoch, according to the Jewish tradition, that Enoch said this, the seventh from Adam, he prophesied, and he's speaking about those people who are saints and those people who are sinners, right? The Lord will come with 10,000 of his saints to execute judgment on all of these people who are ungodly. That this man, Enoch, is very much concerned with the spiritual matters. He's thinking about the spiritual, okay? Say Ambrose, he also saw in this man, Enoch, um, like a portrait of like the apostleship, right? The apostolic life that couldn't be overcome by death. He said, indeed, the apostles did not know death as they were told by the Lord Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So just as Christ was saying about the apostles, saying there are some who will not taste death, so here he's, Enoch is, literally did not experience death. Okay, So he lived for this period of time, and then he walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. So somehow God took him without dying. Uh, what does that mean for him? And what is going to happen to him? Uh, is he? Some people say he's going to come back on earth and he's going to die and be resurrected with everyone else. Um, but we don't really know what is what is going to happen with him. Okay. Um, somebody's saying, do we believe in the book of Enoch? The book of Enoch is a book that is uh, accepted by uh, the Ethiopian Orthodox Church as a canonical book. Uh, we do not consider it canonical, uh, uh, like like the like the Ethiopian Orthodox Church does. Um, okay, so we continue. Methuselah, right? He lived one hundred and eighty-seven years and begot Lamech. See, this is another Lamech. Remember, the first Lamech also was from the line of Cain. Now we have another Lamech. Okay. Um, the name Methuselah, uh, he, it means man with a weapon, okay? And he died in the same year as the Great Flood, and he was 969 years old when he died, 
Um, uh, he actually is the oldest person uh, to live uh, in, uh, in, uh, in the scripture. St. Jerome, he says, even if we live for 900 years or more as people of the pre-flood era, even if we are granted the age of Methuselah, yet when that long lapse of time comes to an end, it will be counted as nothing. Whether man lives 10 years or 1,000 years, when life is over and the inevitable death is realized, the past, short or long, is counted the same. Although he who lived longer would be burdened by heavier load of sins to carry with him. So what St. Jerome is saying is whether our lives on earth are short or long, in the end, there is an end. And the idea that there is an end should make us all live while understanding and realizing that there is an end and that we should um, you know, live with eternity in mind. We shouldn't live thinking only of this world, feeling like this world is it because I have many, many years left. Even someone like Methuselah who lived for a thousand years almost should be someone who is thinking about his end. After he begot Lamech, Methuselah lived 782 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. Lamech lived 182 years and had a son and he called his name Noah. Okay, so this is another famous person who we're going to talk about. Saying, this one will comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. After he begot Noah, Lamech lived 595 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. And Noah was 500 years old, and Noah begot Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Okay, So this is introducing us to uh, Noah, uh, who uh, is going to be the next main character that we're going to read about the Great Flood, which is one of the most important uh, events that happened in the Old Testament. And uh, we're going to see the, the, the role that Noah plays um, in that in the coming chapters. Um, does anybody have any questions before we conclude for today? Uh, I want a question. Yes. So on, so on, so on, so on. So by comparing Cain to Adam, what do you think it's worse? Cain again killing his brother or Adam eating from the tree that God told him not to eat from? What do you think it's worse? To God, all of the sins are the same. Um, I don't think we can speak about whether something is worse or better. Um, you know, even the when you think about what is the sin that Adam committed, Adam and Eve committed, they ate from a tree that they were told not to eat from, right? Maybe in our modern life, when we would compare a crime of someone eating the fruit of a tree that doesn't belong to them versus someone murdering another person, we would clearly say that murdering a person is far, far worse and deserves far greater punishment than someone simply like going to eat from a tree that they shouldn't eat. Right. But in the eyes of God, right, what does God want? God wants us to be in union with him. Right. Like, like the goal of God is he wants to love us completely and, and that we would love him completely. And the only way for that to fully happen is for us to be mentioned. OK, uh, sorry, for, 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 for us to be in union with him all the time. Right. But because God is perfect. And without sin or stain or any kind of blemish, the only way that he can be united with us completely is if we are also without sin or stain or blemish, right? So any kind of sin, no matter how small from our perspective it is, prevents us from being in communion with God. This is why any sin at all caused the fall to happen. So it didn't have to be something as great as killing someone. Right. It's something it's just any disobedience at all for God, no matter what it was, was the consequence would have been the same. So I, I can't really speak about one being better than the other. There are different consequences for different sins, for sure. Right. Like when I when I commit a sin of uh, lying, it might have a much better consequence than the sin of murder, for instance. Right. But it doesn't mean that one sin is 
is better than the other. In the eyes of God, both separate us from him equally, right? So I think that's an important distinction uh, to make. Okay. Um, any other questions? Um, someone is saying, does that mean that if we do not confess a sin because we do not remember we did it, does that mean we are not forgiven? No, actually, when we confess, we even ask God to uh, forgive us of sins that we have forgotten. And in the in the absolution of the uh, uh, that is prayed by the priest on the person who is confessing, uh, he actually will ask God to forgive the sins that have been committed, uh, both uh, knowingly and unknowingly. So this is this is why we do that. Because if we are like sincere in confession, but there's a lot of sins we're not even aware of, um, God does forgive us of those sins as well, unless we are explicitly trying to hide them. Okay. Um, any other questions? Okay. Glory be to God forever. Amen. We thank you, Lord, for this day, and we thank you for your blessings upon us and for allowing us to study your word. Please teach us, O Lord, how is it that we should live and to learn the lessons from those who came before us. Bless us and bless all your people in every place and guard us and keep us safe and grant us, O Lord, a desire and a deeper desire to know you and to live according to your commands. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us as they are daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever.